people at Ephesus, and he basically says this, uh, don't think like the world thinks. Uh, you're a child of God. You are in Christ. You don't do it like the world does it. You don't think like the world does it. So you need to stay away from that, as he calls it, Gentile thinking. We think differently because our God teaches us differently. Uh, you get to chapter 5, and Paul starts talking about the idea of your walk, your daily walk. And he talks about learning to walk in love. And he talks about learning to be a light to a dark world. He talks about the idea of being careful as you walk so that people can see Christ in you. And he gets to the end of chapter 5, and he starts talking about this idea of learning submission. That as a child of God, we submit to one another. We focus on each other. We focus on building one another up. We focus on the idea of serving one another in Christ. And then he gets into specifics, and he talks about very specific application of that. And we talked a couple of weeks about husbands and wives. And we talked about the idea that wives, uh, again, everyone submits, but wives in, in particular, he focuses on the idea of, of learning to respect and honor your, your husband. He talks, about, he talks to men about the idea of you really need to learn to love your wife. And again, to, to a culture, this was, this was revolutionary talk to a culture in which women were considered basically property in some cases. And for him to say, you know, and marriages were prearranged, and then to go in and say, you need a lover and treat her with dignity and respect and value her and do all that, that was a big deal. Um, now, last week we talked about children and parents. Um, I, I went a little longer than I normally do because it's something I kind of get a little passionate about, um, as you could tell. Uh, but we talked about kids, and we talked about the idea of kids obeying your parents and um, listening to them and, and learning the issue that at the foundation of your life is authority. And the sooner you learn to respond properly to authority, the smoother your life will be. And when we talked to parents about the idea of teaching your children, and we focused, I focused on two things. First of all, I focused on the issue of authority and the idea that when you undermine any authority in the life of your child, you undermine your own authority. And you need to realize that. And then I talk, we talked about the idea of teaching your kids that choices have consequences. Good choices, good consequences. Bad choices, bad consequences. And that as a parent, when you run interference and you soften consequences, sometimes you do more damage and more harm than you do good. This morning, we're going to talk about slaves and masters. And you go, well, that's an easy one. Um, employees and employers, all right? Uh, so, yeah, there is an application to it. I need to lay a little bit of groundwork for you uh, so you get this as we talk about this issue of slaves and masters. So I want to give you a little Old Testament background about slavery. I want to give you and slaves, and I want to give you then the, what it was like in the, in the book of Ephesus, in, in the town of Ephesus, when Paul is writing this, and then we'll get into the verses in particular. Um, slavery in the Old Testament is an interesting concept. Uh, basically, what you need to understand is that people um, were considered property. Um, now, slavery was a little different than slavery in, in the United States um, back in the early uh, history of our country. But basically, slaves, you got into slavery through a number of ways. One way was when, uh, when an army would conquer another town, okay, uh, sometimes what they would do is they would, they would go into the town and they would offer the people a truce. And they would say, we won't wipe you out if you'll all agree to be our slaves. So in some cases, the people would just surrender and they would all go into slavery. Um, in other cases, the town decided to fight, in which case all the men were slaughtered. The women and children were then taken captive. If you'll remember, when, the children, when Babylon came in 
and, and took the children of Israel. That's the whole story of uh, Hananiah, Asheel, uh, Azariah, and, and Mishael, uh, and Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, when they were taken into slavery. They took the best and the brightest of the youngest, tried to train them up in the Babylonian ways. So you have that kind of slavery that would happen. Some people went into slavery because of debt. They owed money they couldn't pay. Um, so they would sell their family or sometimes themselves into slavery. If they were Jewish, it was a little different. And if you, as a Jewish slave, um, in the Jewish world, what would happen is you served for six years. Um, and on the seventh year, which was a year of release, you would be released and be freed. So at the end of seven years, you would be freed. Now, some people enjoyed working with their master so much that they volunteered to, to continue to serve them because in, in a lot of cases, they participated in meals with the family. They, they enjoyed some privileges and rights that, that, that they may not have had if they were working elsewhere. So what they would say is they'd go to their master and they'd say, you know what, I know I could be freed this year, but I don't want to be freed. I want to continue to live and work for you as your, as your slave. And what they would do <clears throat> is uh, they would pierce their ear. And um, so if you saw someone with a pierced ear, um, that was a recognition that they had been, they had the opportunity to be free, but they had chosen not to be free. Um, and it was a, kind of a, you know, kind of like a wedding ring is a symbol of people who are married. This was a, this was a symbol of someone who um, was in a good relationship with their master and wanted to continue that. Um, in some cases, the slaves would run away. And when they ran away um, and they were often brought back, they were tattooed. They would put a permanent mark on their body so that they would know that if they ever ran again, that they were owned or they belonged to somebody else, much like during the Holocaust when they, they, they gave people numbers. Um, so you see a lot of these concepts are, are actually have an ancient rooted history uh, behind them. And so um, that's, that's just some of the ideas behind it. Uh, basically, uh, in slavery, in, in, in the... In the, New, in the Old Testament time, life was pretty sustainable. I mean, you know, you, you ate with the family. You would, uh, it, it wasn't like when, when you look at slavery, in a, and this is important to understand, when you look at slavery in this country versus slavery in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's very, very different. Um, and, and it's not like the, that type of uh, where slaves were just really, really put down and humiliated. Uh, by the time we get to the New Testament time that this is written in, in Ephesus and with the Roman culture, uh, slavery has really changed at that point. Uh, and you need to understand there were a lot of people that were involved in slavery. Uh, estimates say that in an average town in the first century, 25% of that town was slaves. In some towns, it was a third to half of the town was slaves. A large, a large owner of somebody who had a really large family and a large, think of it as a large family farm or a large family business, they could have as many as 200 slaves. Um, depending on who you were, um, the price of you as a slave went up. So again, if you had incurred a lot of debt, sometimes you would sell yourself into servitude. Uh, and, and typically, uh, the more educated you were, the higher the price. Uh, it's interesting, doctors, um, architects, um, painters of pottery uh, fetched a pretty high value um, in, in, in that world. Um, it was not, and, and often in that world, you could buy yourself out of slavery. So it wasn't like once you were a slave, you were always a slave. There was a, there was a point at which you could, 
You can, and in a lot of cases, they were actually paid. Um, they were given living quarters, and yet they were also paid a stipend, and you could keep and save up enough of that stipend to buy yourself out and go free. In some cases, you just kept the money and, and, and just spent it on your family. Um, in the Old Testament, it's interesting. Um, in the Old Testament, um, that the price of a slave was 30 shekels of silver. Okay? Now, if you were a workman during that time, and you were working, say, a, a, a nine-to-five job or eight-to-five job, um, in, a, in a typical year, you would earn 10 shekels. So if you take your income, whatever you make in a year, and you multiply it times three, that's how much it would cost you to buy a slave. Okay? So, you know, if you make $50,000 a year and you wanted to buy a slave, a slave would have been $150,000, to give you an idea. It's three times the the value of the person. So you can understand that this wasn't just something that was just easy for anybody to do. Um, You had to have some wealth anyway to be able to even do that. Um, What's interesting is um, when Judah sold Christ, how many pieces of 30? Um, What's interesting also during this time is the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis set some guidelines. Um, in the culture, if you, if, a, if you took a slave's eye or broke his tooth, you were supposed to set them free. Uh, if you, you were allowed to beat a slave, um, but if you killed a slave, all of a sudden now you had to face punishment as a master. If you beat a slave and he lived for two days, you were scot-free. It was okay. You, you taught them a lesson and you were, you were a good master at that point. Um, so there was some there were some guidelines that, but their Jewish rabbis, when they got to the issue of teaching Jews about slavery, um, it was interesting. They said that you should never ever require a slave to do menial jobs, and and there were three in specific that they listed. You were never to ask a slave to grind at a mill. You were to never ask a slave to untie the shoes of the master, and you were never to ask a slave to wash feet. Now, that's significant if you think about that, for those of you who know your Bible. When, when John the Baptist is on the scene, and they ask John, are you the one? Are you the great one? Are you one? And, and John's answer is, there comes one greater than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to unlo- unloose. He says, hey, I'm not even as good as a slave for the guy who's coming after me, speaking of Jesus. That's why when Jesus goes to wash their feet... Peter is so adamant, you can't do this. I mean, we don't even ask a servant or a slave to do this. And you, as my Lord, you're going to do this? Forbid it. I forbid it. You know, and then, of course, Jesus says, well, if you don't let me do this, then you don't have anything to do with me. And then he's like, well, give me a bath then. I'm all in. Um, you know, so you have that, 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 that mindset in, in the Jewish world. So it's important for us to understand. Um, Okay, I've got to take this rabbit trail because we're here, and you know me enough to know that that's what I'd like to do. So when we come to these passages, one of the big issues is why doesn't Paul address slavery in the Bible? Now, he actually does. We're going to get to that in a second. But why doesn't, why doesn't Christianity come out against slavery? I mean, if this, you know, people are not property and, and you know, they have value in Christ and da-da-da. So why doesn't Paul, particularly as much of the New Testament as he writes, jump on the slavery thing in the first century? It's so, it's so wrong. Here's the reason, I think. A lot of conservative Bible scholars believe this is what I believe. Um, Christianity, you're talking about uh, 60, 70 A.D., somewhere in there. Christ passes away 30, 33, 35 A.D., somewhere in there. You're talking about within 30, 40 years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And it would have been very easy for Christianity to get sidetracked. It would have been very easy for Christianity to become about slavery. Oh, those are the people who are against slavery. Because believe me, you stood up against slavery in this thing, you were going to start a movement. You were going to start a revolution. Especially if you're talking about, in some cases, a third, a half, a quarter of the people who are in slavery and you're trying to free them. That's going to make some, that's going to make some headlines. But when that makes headlines, what doesn't get headlines? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Paul takes great effort, and the early writers take great effort to make sure the focus of Christianity is Christ, a resurrected Christ. So when these issues come up, although they could jump on the bandwagon to it, they don't. Why? Because the focus is Jesus Christ. I think there's a great lesson in there for the church today. You see, it's easy for us as a group, as Christians, to jump on all the social issues of the day. I'm not saying they don't need to be addressed, but here's what I am saying. When Christianity becomes more focused on this than a resurrected Christ, our message gets lost. And I see that danger happening. Because here's the bottom line. We have organizations that they're more about what they're against than what they're really about. And you go, well, how come you're not leading people to Christ? How come you're not focusing on, on, on reaching the world for Jesus Christ? How come you're focused on all of these agendas, all of these social issues, all these things that we need to change, all these things that are wrong? Well, here's why. Because if they narrow it down to this, they're going to lose a lot of their, their base of supporters financially. There's a financial deal to this. And so one of the things that has happened is they've become more associated with what they're against than what they're about. And truthfully, they spend a lot of time tearing down, not a lot of time building up. And it's a danger because what happens is Christians become associated with that rather than this. And Paul and the early church were very, very adamant about the idea of keeping the focus on a resurrected Christ who can save you from your sin and change your life. So Christianity, early Christianity, took the long-term approach, which was this. If we can get people to come to Christ, and we can get people to live like Christians, that problem will go away. And that's exactly what you see Paul, when he gets to Ephesians chapter 6, doing. If I can get slaves to act like they're supposed to, and I can get masters to act like they're supposed to, we won't be dealing with this issue. Because they'll start treating each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll talk about how that really plays out in the, in the end. But that's a long-term approach. That's a, that's a slow, methodical deal. And, and, and that's why it's so important. I'm all for changing the world with all of the places that the world in America is all messed up. But you know how we change the world? We get people to come to Christ and to live like Christians and to live like God has called them to live. That's how we change America. Go out and fight all the stuff. Go ahead and fight all the stuff. I don't have a problem with that. But when that becomes your main message and you go, hey, I'm a Christian because I fight all this stuff. You've missed the boat. When Christ left the world, he didn't leave the world and say, go fight all the social ills of the day. He said, go into the world and preach the gospel. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded. Teach them to go out and live like they're supposed to live. That'll change it. 
That'll turn it upside down. And we've got to get back to that. So I just want to challenge you with that. That was my rabbit trail. That was free. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6 now. Here's where it goes. All right, Ephesians chapter 6. Oh, Ephesians 5. I get, yeah, I'm, I keep forgetting. Okay, this is, the, this is the introduction to all this section about parents and children and, and husbands and wives and employees and employers, all right? Um, because I, I know some of you feel like a slave at work, but we're going to talk about that in a minute. Because technically you are, it's just you don't realize it yet. But anyway, all right. Ephesians chapter 6, here's where it goes. Uh, here's what he says. Slaves. I'm, when you, see, when you see slaves and masters, submit it with, replace it with employees and employers, all right? That's the, that's the application of it. So employees, well, I'm going to do it this way. Obey your earthly bosses or employers with respect and fear and sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Now, just let me give you a little breather here. You're like, what does obey mean? You remember when I preached really hard about kids, obey your parents? Same word. You mean it doesn't mean like something different? No, no, the same word. So in the same way that you expect your children to obey you, you obey your employer. That's what he says. Now again, the Bible's common sense. We're not talking about being asked to do something immoral or unethical. Okay? Paul, the Bible's really clear about that. Your boss says, I want you to fudge the numbers so we're lying to the IRS. No. Okay? You know, no. You don't, you, you know, you don't, you don't go to jail because you obeyed your boss. I mean, you know, use common sense here. So we're not talking about immoral and unethical. Obey them not only to win favor when their eye is on you. So in other words... You don't work better when the boss is watching. You work the same whether the boss is there or not. Notice what he goes on to say. But as slaves, yes, slaves, of Christ, doing the will of God, and we see this phrase again, from your heart, serve wholeheartedly. You give it 100%. As if you were serving the Lord and not people. So here's, the, here's, what, here's what I'd say. Tomorrow you go into work and your boss stands up in front of you. He says, by the way, he says, I've got a new manager here for the office. I've got a new person you're accountable to. And in walks Jesus Christ. How are you going to work that day? That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. You may think you're working for that company. You're not. You may think you're working for that boss. You're not. If you're a child of God here this morning, you are working for Christ himself. You know, yeah, but you, uh, I mean, you know, I'm a farmer. I, I shovel stuff all day long. You're shoveling it for God. Well, you, you know, you, you know I, I mean, I have to, you know, I'm a cashier. I have to take. You treat every person as if you were dealing with Christ. You work as if you were working for Jesus. Because you are. That's, that's what he, by the way, he's saying this to people who stood up on a platform often, and somebody would say, I think they're worth five shekels. I think they're worth 20 shekels. I'll give you 50 shekels for that person. Hey, do we have a bid today? Will somebody give me a shekel? 
for this person? He's writing to those people, and he's saying, when you do your job for the master who has bought you, you do it as if you were purchased by Jesus Christ. Why? 1 Corinthians 10, because we are. We are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are his, not yours. So Paul writes to these people, and he says, so you serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because, and, and this is something we never talk about. You've never, I, I doubt many of you have ever heard this preached before. Because you know that the Lord will reward each of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Some translations say, for your heavenly reward. Paul is actually teaching there's people that there is a, an eternal aspect to the way you do your job Monday through Friday. Yes, you're going in to do your job. Yes, you're going to go in and work on that thing. Yes, you're going to go put in time for the employer. Yes, you're going to punch that card. Yes, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to do whatever your job is. He says, he says, you need to understand the way you do that and the attitude that you have as you do that. God, when you do it with the right attitude, when you show respect to your boss, when you serve him wholeheartedly, or her, when you do your job right, God rewards you in eternity. Now, I don't know what that means. But I know how hard people work for retirement. We're talking about an eternal retirement. We're talking about something that has an eternal dynamic to it. And Paul says, you do that whether you were slave or free. And, and this really changes the way you look at your job if you think about this for a minute. And you go, well, you know, you don't know my boss. There's no way I can respect that person. Here's what I would suggest to you. There's a concept in the military regarding saluting of officers. And people who are in the military will tell you this. You are always saluting the rank, not necessarily the person. Because just because they hold that rank doesn't mean that they hold the respect that comes with that rank. Because some of them are just poor leaders. But in the military, you learn to salute the rank. This is what he's saying. Because your boss is the boss, you respect the fact that they're the boss. And you're not. You go, yeah, but you don't understand how unreasonable they are. Employees, obey your earthly masters as long as they deserve it. It's not what it says. With respect and with fear. That, bottom line. Oh, I just hate my job. You're working for God. You're not working for that company. You're not working for that boss. You're not you're saying, yeah, but they're the ones that sign my pet. You're working as if you were working for Jesus Christ. That's the attitude that you have to work for work. There's an eternal dimension to what you do. You go, well, you know, I just I mean I just work out in the field all day long. There's an eternal dimension to what you do. Okay? And how you do that job, whether you cut corners, whether you do it right. And and God is constantly wanting you, as his child, to do your best for his honor and his glory. That's what he wants. That's what he expects from us as Christians, as people who have been given so much. Right? That's the idea towards us as we work tomorrow. 
as you go to work tomorrow or this afternoon or whenever it is you go to work. Then he's going to talk to employers. Okay? Notice what he says. He goes on. Uh, masters, employers, treat your slaves in the same way. Literally what this says is in the same way that you would be treated. So here's what Paul's saying. If you were your employee, would you want to work for you? I mean, would you? Would you go, okay, I got fired tomorrow, but I would go work for, I would go take the job that I'm offering to everybody else because it is, because that, that is such a great job in the way those people are treated. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if you're an employer, if you're a master, if you're somebody who's in charge, you need to set up the, I had one guy that, very successful businessman. I, I, I learned everything I can from him. One of the things that he used to say is, is um, he was in a pretty competitive market in, 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 the, in the career field that he was in. And um, there were always people who were offering more money for the same job that he was hiring people for. And when people would come in and they go, well, so-and-so will offer me more money, it, here was his standard line. He said, look, if it's about money, I'll just, I'm just, we're just going to cut to the chase. I'm going to make this really simple for you. There are lots of companies in town that will offer you more money. If it's about more money, then you need to go work for them. But if you are interested in the best work environment you will ever have, hands down, I will guarantee you, you will not find a better work environment in this job field than working for us. And it was funny because he would have people who would go leave and they would go out for more money. And then they would come back and they would say, any chance you'd hire me again? And his attitude was, sure, as long as you understand it's not about money. Because he looked at it as his job was to provide a work environment people enjoyed working in. And he was in a very competitive market where he was able to get people to fill those slots because of the environment, because he create, tried to create a place that he would want to work at. And that's what he's talking about. He says, look, you treat your, your employees in the same way that you would like to be treated if you were your employee. You know, and if you're stingy with the benefits with them, then be stingy with your own benefits. Isn't that, oh boy, I go, I don't know. Isn't that what bothers you about the political world right now? Is that they're living by a different set of rules than we have to live by? Does that make you happy? No, you sit there and go, we should change it. You know, Congress should have the same health care we should have. And you get all bent out of shape on it. And yet you, as an employer, will set a whole different standard for your employees that you, don't, that you won't hold yourself to. How's that any different? It's not. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, look, you set up your environment, your work world, in the same way that you would want to work for yourself. And he goes on to say that. Don't threaten them. Again, in first century Ephesus, don't threaten them? Are you kidding me? That's the only way we can get them to do what they're supposed to do, is if we, if we instill fear in them. Paul said, that's not the way you do it. And you know as well as I do. If you have to motivate your employees by fear, it is the weakest form of leadership you can have as a leader. And it says more about your insecurities as a leader than anything else. Because that's, that's the worst motivator for people. And, and Paul says here, he says, look, don't threaten them. 
since you know, and he gives an illustration here, since you know that he who is both their master, he just said that, and yours in heaven. He says, you both have the same Lord. Why are you going to threaten them and try to intimidate them and try to govern them or lead them by fear as, as their employer? And there is no favoritism with him. You don't play favorites. You make it equal across the board for everybody in the organization so that it's fair and it's, and it's, it's legitimate that way. That's what Paul said. Now, here's what's interesting, okay? Because here's the story behind the story. And I tell you that often the Bible has, has, has layers. It's like an onion that as you start to peel back and you learn more and more and more. Let me tell you what's happening in the real world of Paul while he is writing this. Paul's in Rome and he's in prison, okay? He's writing this from, from prison. As Paul is writing this, there is a guy by the name of Onesimus who is a runaway slave. And Onesimus comes in contact with Paul, and Onesimus becomes a Christian. And Paul starts working with Onesimus. Now, Paul, as a Christian, discipling Onesimus as a Christian, looks at Onesimus as a runaway slave and says, you know what, you need to make right what you've done wrong. You've run away from your master. You need to go back, and you need to make that right. Now, time out, because here's a problem. Often, you know what that meant? You were going to get beaten. In some situations, you were going to get executed. In some situations, if you were taken back, you were going to get the lowest job of the lowest jobs. Because they were going to send a message to all the other slaves not to do what you did. That's what it meant. Here's the kicker. Onesimus ran away from his master, whose name was Philemon. And Philemon was a Christian that Paul knew. So Paul convinces Onesimus to go back to Philemon. And he says, Philemon, you need to make this, or Onesimus, you need to make this right. You need to go to Philemon. As a Christian, you need to do what's right here. So Onesimus makes the journey back. You have in your Bible, in your New Testament, a little one-chapter book called Philemon. It's the letter that Paul wrote to give to Onesimus to take to Philemon and say, I'm back, I ran away, I'm sorry, since I ran away I became a Christian, my life has changed, that was the wrong thing to do, I'm asking that you take me back. Oh, by the way, you remember Paul? Oh, the great apostle Paul, yeah, 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 he wrote you a letter, here, read this. And Paul writes to Philemon and basically says this, listen, you guys are brothers in Christ now, so you don't, you, you treat him right here. As a brother in Christ, he did what was wrong, he came back, he's trying to make it right. Now you need to respond in a right way to him from one brother in Christ to another brother in Christ. You don't need to do what the world does and handle it the way the world would handle this. You need to handle this like two Christians should handle this. And it's a practical application. Why? Because that would have become far more effective to everybody when they watch how a Christian handles a runaway slave who's now a Christian, and how they interact, and how he could show grace and mercy that was reflective of Jesus Christ, who showed grace and mercy to them. Because they, same, they serve the same Lord and Master. Okay? That's why he says this. So, a couple of takeaways, and then we're done. A couple of things to think about this week. Here's the, the first thing. Um, the first thing is this. Number one is the idea that you need to think about your work with an eternal dimension to it. 
there's a reason God has you where he has you. God could put a lot of other people there. But for whatever reason, God has put you in that work world. You go, it's a horrible place to work. I'm, I'm not going to debate that. So you are, as we've already talked about in Ephesians chapter 5, going to be a light in a very dark place. Which means that you're going to have to conduct yourself in such a way that they see Christ in you. Because the bottom line is, you're not working for you. See, this is why some of you are so frustrated, because you're working for a paycheck. You're not working for a paycheck, you're working for God. You know, I have people telling you, oh, it would be so nice to be a pastor. You know, you, got, you work like one morning a week. You know, I always tell people this. Please, 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 will you say that to my wife and let me watch what happens? <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, you know, my kids are like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, go ahead, try that, run that one by me. But you know, honestly, it's one of those deals where it's like, you know, and everybody, you know, I would love to be a pastor, you know, pastor, you know, because like, you know, you're working for God all the time. How's that different from what you got to do? You just have to do a different place. With different skill sets, with different requirements. There's no difference. What you're doing, you're doing for God. There is an eternal dimension. God is going to reward you in heaven for the way you do your job tomorrow and throughout the week. It's not about the paycheck. It's not about the retirement. It's not about the benefit package. It's not about all that stuff is great. That's just icing on a cake as a Christian. There's an eternal dynamic to what you're doing tomorrow. And what's really cool is if you do it well, before you know it, you can have a ministry at work helping and encouraging people who are having a difficult time because they know you're different from everybody else there. And the next thing you know, you've got people coming up to you going, hey, look, you know what? I mean, I know we're not supposed to talk about this at work, but I know you like do that prayer thing, and I know you've got like this prayer list thing. Um, can you throw my family on it? We're going through a tough time. Now, these same people that at break are making fun of you. But they may not like you, but they've earned your respect. Or you've earned their respect. And when they're in a crisis, you're the person they're going to come to. Not their buddies on break. Second thing is I want to encourage you with this concept or this idea that you need to give it 100%. Wholeheartedly, with your whole heart. Um, Colossians 3 says, and what, or, or 1 Corinthians says, Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as the Lord and none of men. You're working for God this week. You need to give it 100%. I'm not trying to be crude, but I'm just trying to tell you the, what, the, the world that I was brought up in. I, I was taught that you do everything as if you were doing it for Christ himself. Um, in order to pay for college, one of the things that I did is I cleaned the men's dorms, bathrooms of college students. You figure out how pleasant that job was. And I'm not trying to be crude or anything else, but I'm just telling you what was instilled in us. It was Christian college. We, we were taught this. You clean that restroom as if Jesus Christ is the next person to use it. So every time you are tempted to cut corners... You think, no, wait a minute. That's not how I do it. You go to work tomorrow as if Jesus Christ was the person standing there to hold you accountable for the way you did your job tomorrow. 
you give it 100%. The world cuts corners. Oh, I know they say it's a 30-minute break, but if you do this, you can stretch it to like 45 minutes. If it's a 30-minute break, it's a 30-minute break. If the boss says that you're to be there at 8 o'clock, what that means is that at 8 o'clock you're ready to do your job. Not at 8 o'clock you're walking into the building. That's what it means. You do it differently. Why? Because you're not doing it for the boss. You're not doing it for somebody else. I mean, you know, here's the bottom line. You know, if I told you, hey, tomorrow at work, when you check in, Jesus Christ could be standing there at the time clock. You would be on time, I guarantee you. I don't care how late you normally are. Why? Because all of a sudden there's a different motivation. That's exactly what Paul's saying. You do it with your whole heart, serving Christ. He's your master. He's the one you're working for. He's the, one, he's the reason that you do it. And then, this is my pet peeve. I'm going to try not to get too animated. Animated, animated, animated. I believe Christians should do it better. Because we're doing it for a different reason. One of the things that makes me angry is when I hear people say, I don't want to hire Christians because they're lazy. And I've heard that. I've heard people say, you know what? Here's the problem. If I hire Christian people, they tend to cut corners. They tend to be not straight up with me. They tend to take advantage of me. That, that kind of thing like boils my blood. Stuff like that. They should just say just the opposite. I love hiring Christian people. Because they're dedicated and they're loyal and they're faithful and they're on time and they do a great job. Unfortunately, I deal with too many people who have ruined it for Christian people in our testimony because they cut corners. When we built this building, one of the things that was really important to me, when we would go to and hire somebody to do something, we didn't hire a lot of stuff, done, but when we hired stuff, I was very adamant with the board. We don't ask for special deals. Because we're a church, we don't ask for discounts. Because these are people who have to run a business, and they have expenses. And so when we would go to a contractor, and I would meet with somebody who we were hiring to do something, I said, here's what I want from you. I said, I want your best and final price, and you need to know this. I don't expect a discount. I don't want a discount. If you want to give me a discount, that's all on you. But you don't do it because we're a church. You don't do it because it's going to, you think it's going to get you into heaven. You know, and we actually had people that thought, okay, if I do this for a church, you know, hey, bing, 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 bing. You know, and I was really clear about, no, it doesn't work like that. Um, but, I mean, you know, I was really clear about, no, you give me a price straight up. No, you know, if you want to give us, that's fine, but we're not asking for it, and I don't expect it. And I've actually had Christian business to tell me. They hate dealing with Christians because Christians go in and go, hey, you're a Christian, you owe me. Give me a discount. Who do we think, where do we get that? How is that serving one another and putting the needs of somebody else in front of me and putting Christ first? No, I go in and I expect to, to help them. I don't, ex- I don't want them as a Christian to take advantage of me, and I don't want to expect something from them I shouldn't expect from them. And it's important that we understand this because people are watching us. And I would love to get to the point that, I, that people come to you, hey, you got anybody that can do this job and stuff like that? And I say, well, you know, I, I don't know if they can do the job or not, but... They go to church with me. What church? Holly Springs. Oh, I've hired those people. I'll take them in a heartbeat. 
Well, I don't know if they're qualified. That's okay. That's all right. They'll do it. They'll figure it out. I like those kind of people. They're a little wacky, but I like, I like, I'll, I'll pay them because they'll do the job. That's what you want to hear. That's what the world, the world should be going, you know what? I, you know, isn't that what happened? Ever bought a piece of Amish furniture? All you have to know is that an actual Amish person did it. Enough said. You know, you know it's not going to be, and no offense, you know it's not going to be from Ikea, all right? With, with pegs and stuff, although that's some awesome stuff. Um, but you know, I mean, you know it's quality, you know it's, hand, you know it's well done, it's well built, it's solid. Why? Because that's their reputation. I think in the work world, because we're working for Jesus Christ, because we're working for an eternal dynamic, because we are trying to reflect Christ in everything that we say or do, hands down, we should be the kind of people that people want to hire because of our Christ and our God. That's what Paul's trying to get. He's trying to get a group of slaves to respond that way to their owners. He's trying to get a bunch of owners to respond that way to their slaves so that the other slave owners and the other slave people are looking at it going, I don't know what it is about you guys and your master, but you guys are incredibly different. Any chance your master would hire me? And eventually what happens, it's interesting you study history, eventually what happens, this slavery thing kind of starts to die out. Because Christianity starts to get a movement in which people are changing their lives. And before you know it, Christians, slaves and masters, it's like they're, they're blended together. There's hardly a difference at all. And you got people going, you know what, I mean, I could go work elsewhere, but it would really work for you. You even see that in America in the, in the early, in the way some people dealt with slaves. Why? Because we should do it differently. We should do it differently. So I, my challenge to you is this. I, I end with this. Paul challenges us the issue of slavery by encouraging people to treat one another with dignity and as people. Slavery is confronted by focusing on our personal responsibility instead of our rights. As employees, we are serving God when we do our job with the right attitude and actions towards our employer. As employers, we create an environment which we would be willing to work. And we see the most valuable people in our organization as those who have chosen to work for us. We invest in their lives eternally, not just materially. We do it differently because we have a different motivation and drive. Because we have Christ in us. We want the world to see it. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Lord, it's easy to get sucked into the thinking of this world where we start to act like everybody else because we're surrounded by it. But Lord, you didn't call us to be like everybody else. You saved us and gave us a new purpose, a new drive, a new focus so that people could see Christ in us. So Lord, help us tomorrow as we go into the work world. Lord, Rather than complaining, may we show people how grateful we are to have the job that we have. 
rather than being disrespectful, Lord, may we respect and honor those that you have put over us as employers or bosses or people in charge of our group. And Lord, tomorrow, when we come to the end of the day, may we put our head on our pillow, knowing that we have given 100% for you so that Christ might be seen in us. And Lord, will you help us to be a light in some dark places this week. These things we ask in your name. Amen.